You're not even going to ask me to push a button anymore. I'm glad somebody has figured it out. Exactly where my skills lie and don't lie. If you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 7, uh, we're going to be uh, spending a, the bulk of our time there. And, you know, you may you may be thinking, well, you're spending a lot of time in the Old Testament. Uh, and that's right, and there, uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. We're going to be looking at more New Testament stuff in some of the later lessons. But one of the reasons for that is I think we can we can stand back with some distance from the events and look at their efforts to restore and we can learn some lessons from it. The, the other reason is, as Paul said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And as a good friend of mine used to say, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, that's how... That's what is right, what's not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. You don't need to know anything else. But I'll, I'll, I'll credit that. That was Gary Sandusky. And that's, that's everything we need to know. We need to know what is right and what's not right, and how to get right, and how to stay right. And I think we will see that reflected, the power of that reflected uh, in the text before us this morning. I, I love this chapter. God has set David securely on his throne. He is the new king. And as the new king, he wanted desperately, desperately to honor God. Uh, During Saul's reign, worship had been neglected. And so David set about trying to make things better. He had brought the ark back in 2 Samuel 6. And in 2 Samuel 7, he proposes... Uh, to build a temple and in order to honor God and we're gonna we're gonna look at that and hopefully learn learn some lessons uh, from that and so David sets forth his plan uh, in second Samuel 7 1 through 3 it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Now we're going we're to find out in just a minute that Nathan spoke a little too soon. But before we get there, I want us to understand something about this. And that is, David is acting with the purest of motives on this occasion. The problem is not his motivation. The problem is not his intentions. He has good intentions. And we know that because God says he has good intentions. In 2 Chronicles 6, 7 and 8, Solomon is speaking here. It says, Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. God acknowledged David's good intentions. But what we find out is good intentions don't make something good. 
You know, you hear that all the time. Well, I, I know that may not be exactly right, but they have good intentions. Well, that's better than bad intentions. Obviously. But good intentions is not the same as good. And the, and, and the reason good intentions are not the same as good is because as human beings, we don't know what we're doing. God knows. We don't know. My favorite proverb in the whole book of Proverbs is Proverbs 30, verse 2. And I, I can tell by the look on your face you don't know what that says, but I'll tell you what it says. It says, surely I'm more stupid than any man. Now there's a man who, who knew himself. And what he goes on to say is, I don't, I don't know, in effect, what he goes on to say is, I don't know, but God does. Now there's a stupid man I want to listen to. Because he had real wisdom. He knew that he was stupid. He knew that God was. And that's where good intentions fall down. We think we know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. David didn't know what he was doing. He, he's going to acknowledge that, but I'm, spoiler alert, let's, let's get there. And so let's, let's look at God's response to David's plan in 2 Samuel 7, picking up in verse 4. In the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt even to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent, even a tabernacle. Now the first thing we need to notice about that is the tent that he'd been moving about in was the tent that had been made according to the pattern, Exodus 25 and verse 40. It had been made according to the pattern that God had given. And we learn from the Hebrew writer that that pattern came from heaven. It was, a rep, it was a physical representation of a spiritual reality. And God said, have I ever lived in a house? Is there any precedent for that in Scripture? Did, did I live in, in a house in the, in the wilderness? Did I live in a house when they first came in? Has is is that ever been done before? Well, the answer is no. There's no, there's no precedent for that. And then God says, in verse 7, Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house? God said, Did I ask you to build me a house? Is there any precedent for it? Is there any example you can find in the history of God's people for doing this in God's word? Or did I ask for it? Well, the answer to both those questions is no. There's no precedent, there's no example, and there's no command. What we need to understand is, God knows how to ask. If he wants something, he knows how to convey that. He's not shy. He's not backwards about telling us what he wants. He has done that. He didn't ask for this. And so the first thing... David needed to learn in this situation is to respect what God hasn't said. To respect the silence of God and to recognize that God 
didn't ask for it. And if God didn't ask for it, there's a reason God didn't ask for it. Because he knows how to ask. And if it had been according to God's plan, according to what God wanted to do, which David from his position could not yet see. Again, we're, we're going we're to get to that in the text. He would have asked for it, but he didn't ask for it. And he said, well, they did build the temple. Yes, and it was the temple God asked for. But until he asked for it, no. And so we need to recognize, until God asks for a thing, we don't need to do it. Now, I know sometimes when we hear that, we think, well, that is so restricted. Listen. We haven't yet finished doing all the stuff God has for us. Am I right? Let, let's get that done. And then when we get all that, when, we, when we've done everything God has asked us to do to its absolute completion, then we can go back to God and say, is there anything else you'd like for us? But I have not found occasion to ask that question yet. And I suspect, I could be wrong, but I suspect you haven't found occasion to ask that question yet either. You have not found the occasion to get down on your knees and say, Lord, I have done everything you have asked to the very nth degree in every situation to total completion. What else would you like for me to do? I don't think anybody's ever prayed that prayer. So let's finish what God has asked to do us, ask us to do before we come up with others. I, I, I think that would be be prudent and biblical. So, I want to look at this from another perspective. David felt like there was something that he could do for God. Let, let's go back to, to verse 2 of 2 Samuel 7. See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells with in, in tent curtains. And so David's saying, I, I'm in this big fine house. God is down there in that tent. I, 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 need, to, I need to help God out. Mm. God responds to that, actually. And God sets David straight. And in effect, he says, David, yes, you are in that big fine house. Now let's talk about how you got there. And he does that in 2 Samuel 7, 8 and 9. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And so God says, yes, you are in that big fine house, but when I found you, you didn't even have a roof over your head. You were out in the fields watching sheep. You were a nobody, and I took you from the field from watching sheep, and I have been with you through everything you faced. When the, when the, the entire army of Israel was chasing after you to try and kill you, I took care of you, and I put you in this house. And you're going to do something for me? Really? And 
God goes on to say in 2 Samuel 7, 10 and 11, not only has he done this for David, but he's going to do the same thing for God's people. Just as he has treated David, so he will treat Israel. He says in 2 Samuel 7, 10 and 11, I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. I am going to give not only you, David, but all Israel peace and security in the land. And I'm going to take I'm going to take care of all your enemies. And so, in effect, what God is saying is, David, I don't need anything from you. You need something from me. I don't need anything from you. And that idea is actually communicated very, very clearly in Psalm 50. <coughs> Psalm 50, beginning in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all it contains. Now notice what God is saying to him. I don't need anything from you. You are not offering sacrifices because I need you to bring me something. That was the pagan idea that the gods had to be fed by their worship. God says, I, I'm not that God. If I were hungry, I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask you for something. Uh, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. I've, I've, got, I've got plenty. Thanks. I own the universe. Actually, it's all mine already. I'm not... You know, we're, we're like the kid who asks Dad for a few dollars so they can buy Dad a birthday present. The only thing we give to God is what he's already given to us. We can't, we don't bring anything to the table. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. And then he goes on to say in verses 14 and 15 that we offer sacrifices not because God needs us, but because we need him. He says, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you and you will honor me. So there, there are two reasons we, we give to God. We give God to thank Him for what He's done for us. And to seek His help for things we can't do for ourselves. That, that's why we come before God. Not because we can bring something to it. And this, this whole idea is true in another way, in a way I think it's really important to think about. So, all of us, everyone here, at some point, we were living life the way we thought best, without regard for the will of God. We were going through life doing things our way. And at some point we recognized that that wasn't, wasn't working out too good. And so we said, in effect, when we became Christians, I am not going to do things 
my way anymore. Going forward, I'm going to do things God's way. Because my way was an absolute disaster. And so we come into the kingdom and we, we go along for a while and we look at God's will and we, we see something and we think, ah, that's boy, this, this is pretty good, actually. But I've got an idea that I think might make this even better. Really? You are going to sit down at the table with the eternal creator of the universe and bestow upon him your infinite wisdom. How about that? How about that? You've got an idea. I'm going to tell you, whatever we bring to the table, God has already thought about that. And in all likelihood, dismiss it as absolutely disastrous. There's no thought we're going to have that it's going to, God is going to hear that. I am so glad I got hold of you. I don't know what we would have done without you. Do you see how adding to God's word is really, and David is guilty of that here to some degree. I, he had good intentions. I absolutely acknowledge it. But there's a little bit of pride in this. Just a little bit. David said, I'm going to do something for God. And God said, really? You're going to do something for me? I Actually, no. I don't You can't. You can't really do anything for me. David. I appreciate the thought, but you can't do anything for me. It works the other way. And we've, we've got to remember that we're carrying out God's will. Anything we add to God's will subtracts from what God is trying to do. That's the, the math of the matter. We are not... So, let me, let me ask a question. Just nod your head or shake your head. Is God perfect? Okay, we're all in, as far as I can tell, we're all in agreement. Is his plan perfect? Can you make perfect better? So, if you change perfect, what does it become? Imperfect. Well, I, I think that's right. I think God is perfect. I think his plan is perfect. And I think when we go changing his plan, it's not perfect. I think that's self-evident. But I have to admit, there have been times when I hadn't seen it. At least in practice. In theory, I knew that. But in practice, you know what they say about theory and practice. In theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they're not. Well, we need to, in this case, we need to make, restore the correspondence between those two things. And so, David can't do anything from, for God. We can't do anything for God. And the, the final point that I want to make, you know, we may have a little time for well, a little time for questions, is that God had a better plan. And that, that's, what, that's what David came to realize. 
He says in 2 Samuel 7, 11, and, and this, is, this is just fantastic. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And so we need to, we need to see this, this correspondence here. David says, Lord, I want to build you a house. And God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Now, we're talking about two different things. David's talking about a physical structure to, to honor God. God is talking about a spiritual structure that is going to be founded upon a descendant of David. Remember, apostles and prophets of the foundation, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone, that's the, that's the descendant of David, that's the seed of David that is upon which God's house is going to be going to be founded. And he says in 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a better plan than what David had in mind. Because that plan is God coming into the world in the flesh, walking our filthy streets, and teaching and healing and giving himself to die on the cross for our sins. That's a better plan than David ever could follow. And in so doing, building a house for God's name that was so much more glorious than anything David ever could have imagined. And we need to we need to wrap our heads around these these two houses that God has in mind. So David was going to build a physical house and let Let's say, for the sake of argument, that it would have been every bit as glorious as, as the temple that Solomon did build. All the gold, and all the ivory, and all the, the, the cedar, and the silver, and the bronze, and, and the fine linen. All of those things would have composed the temple of God in all its beauty and all its glory. That house had... Had he done it, and had it have been according to God's standard, it would have symbolized God's holiness. And it would have symbolized God's mercy. Remember the lid on the Ark of the Covenant? It's called the mercy seat. And it had two cherubim on it, and God is described in Psalm 80 and verse 1 as the God who dwells above the cherubim. God sat on a mercy seat, and that, that was emblematic of God's, God ruled with mercy, and he ruled with justice, and he ruled with righteousness and holiness. And the, the temple symbolized all of those things. You see, all kinds of symbols, even this, in the structure of the temple, the first thing you come into as you come into the courtyard of the temple, the first thing you encounter is an altar. And that just that just tells you you can't come before God without sacrifice. And then the next thing that you would encounter were you allowed to go in further would be a laver or what we call in Kentucky a wash tub. And that that just tells you you can't come before God without cleansing. And that sounds a lot like the gospel. I mean, all of that symbolized there. 
But that's not the house that Jesus built. Jesus built a house out of living stones. 1 Peter 2, 4-9. through Out of living stones. Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 and verse 16, do you not know that you... And Okay, I, I want to get the original language correct in English. The, the, the actual way to translate that, do you not know that y'all are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in y'all because it's a second-person plural pronoun. The South is the only place where they have a second-person plural pronoun in English. These guys is not... And, and it's, it's plural. Y'all are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in y'all. And this new temple is infinitely more glorious than the old temple because the new temple doesn't symbolize God's mercy. The new temple is merciful because it's made of living stones. It's made of people who are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The new temple does not symbolize the holiness of God. The new temple is holy. The new temple does not symbolize the righteousness of God or the patience of God or the justice of God. The new temple is righteous and patient and just. Which is far greater because the new temple is not made of dead things like stone and silver and gold. It's made of living stones that live out the will of God and directly bless everybody who comes in contact with that's a better plan. That's a far better plan. David never even imagined anything like that. He goes on to say in 2 Samuel 7, 14 through 16, I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. I am going to build a house and set up a forever kingdom in that house that is going to last throughout all eternity. Solomon's temple didn't last that long. David's seed in the person of Jesus Christ built a forever house that will be glorious throughout all eternity. And he made us part of that. And we could not, even after the fact, we we have to know we could not have we could not have imagined such a plan as God's plan. And that's what that's what David comes to realize. He, he at the end of this he says, Wow, your plan is better than my plan, actually. It's it's actually it's actually a lot better. I'm going to shut up now. Now that's a paraphrase. Let's read what he actually says because this is fantastic. Picking up in 2 Samuel 7, uh, 18. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, 
Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, for the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God beside you. You, according to all that we have heard with our ears, and what one nation on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make a name for himself, and to do a great thing for you, and awesome things for your land before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever. Do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established forever before you. And so David falls on his knees before God, and he said, I, I never could have imagined and your plan is so much greater than mine. Please do your, please do your plan. Let's forget about. I, I got nothing more to say. I'm going to shut up now. Whenever we think we've got an idea about how to make things better, we need to look back to cross and look at what God to bring it, did to bring us here. And we need to look forward to the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and look at God's intent for us. And we need to say, I'm going to shut up now. Let's do things your way. We need to, when we, when we come in contact with the Word of God, in a very real sense, we're coming in contact with God. We need to remember that Bible authority, we talk a lot about Bible authority, it's not, it's not an abstract concept. It, it's rooted in who God is and what God has done. It's God's authority. And if we know anything about God, we're going to want to respect what He says not just be willing to respect I thank you for your kind attention. Maybe just a, I know the line might be longer. We've been here a while. So maybe just a couple minutes. Any thoughts, questions, comments, rebuttals, other perspectives, anything? Okay, let's, let's close with prayer and break.